Christ. We'll enter in to the second portion of the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 11, down to chapter 2, verse 10. Please hear God's word to you. And in align with the theme of the sermon, I want to tell you this is God's word to you, not mine. This is Paul, after he had given this great benediction, which I have to read again. In verse 3, he says to his church, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age. That's the water that you or I are in. We are in a flood. This age is evil. It's going to destruction, as Noah saw. But we have been delivered from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. So he goes on in verse 11 to say this, speaking, essentially, the whole portion is him recounting his life in Christ and what brought him to be an apostle to the Galatian churches. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing on in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, revealed his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then in three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, And remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which is far north. And I was still unknown to the persons in the churches of Judea that are in Christ, that is far south. They only... We're hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Paul goes on to continue his narrative by saying this, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and said before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain, that is, 
a false gospel is pure vanity. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother is secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see the whole point of the letter. He needs to preserve the truth of the gospel for this church and for all churches and generations to come. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God knows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. And that's enough for now, I think. This section is just nothing more than Paul recounting a personal historical narrative of himself. You see in the letter, it will make sense by peering this map to my sides, Paul recounted an itinerant ministry that he undertook, which was to be a missionary to the West, mostly all Gentile region. Below, you can't see on the map, is Syria, but below that is Jerusalem. And that's where Paul originally came from as he was speaking with the apostles. But there was a time in his ministry where he was released in that area called Antioch, and he went down through Cyprus, came up through Lyrica, what is Asia, and then you see that province that the Romans called Galatia. <coughs> In the southern part of that, you have Lystra and Derby and Arconium. These are various cities in which Paul traveled around and planted churches, small, tiny, little house churches. And on his returning we're not exactly sure when, but probably within the very same year that he did this missionary journey, toward the end, probably A.D. 48, he writes this letter. This is the first letter that we have in the whole Bible from Paul. This is the beginning of his writing ministry as we have it. And he writes this letter, and boy, does it hit. Because what he's doing is essentially saying, what did I do with my life? They almost killed me. I went to go plant these churches. And before I even get home, they're almost all gone. You see. They're almost completely all undermined with a false gospel that does not save. So, if you've ever been frustrated, maybe at a day at work, 
Read Galatians. If you ever feel like you just can't get anything done, and you only take two steps forward to take three steps back, at least no one's trying to kill you. But he went throughout this world preaching this gospel only by the cunning, and I mean true spiritual warfare that looks just as normal as one person pontificating about their own inflated opinion on eternal matters. That is how it is undermined. Nothing more than a regular idiot speaking a false gospel to undermine all of his work. So he writes to the Galatians to say, how quickly you have deserted your salvation in Christ. That he must clearly explain the difference between what is a true gospel and a false gospel. And so in this portion of his letter as he opens up, he's uniquely saying that a true gospel at this point is revealed. That is, it is not predicated on the wisdom of men. Now, we must understand this. That if we are to say we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to know why it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not just a gospel of Jesus Christ because it's about Jesus Christ. It is a gospel of Jesus Christ because it is revealed by Jesus Christ. It is of his origin. He is the source. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the savior. This gospel is his. It must not be touched, manipulated, or twisted. If it is, it is gone. It is a true example of subtraction by way of addition. Add anything to this gospel, it is gone. It evaporates. Now you have nothing more than a cult, personality, and human wisdom that all leads to destruction and hell. I hope, if anything, that that introduction to the sermon would at least make you think, this letter is pretty important. This is the word of God for you this morning. So please hear. He says, this gospel was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. I received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ. The reality of this gospel he lays out by recounting his history, particularly in three stages. He mentions his revelation of Jesus Christ, which accompanied his immediate conversion to Jesus and commission to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Then he goes on to speak about in three years he visited Jerusalem. And then the third part of his narrative is that yet again he came down and visited Jerusalem. He had a revelation and two consultations. That is, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he consulted with believers in Jerusalem twice. Now, the distinction he makes between what was the revelation of Jesus Christ and entering into a little powwow meeting with the other apostles in Jerusalem is a world apart. And he's making that case to say, do not misunderstand that this gospel in some way was based on a bunch of people getting together in a room and voting up and voting down on the way that the eternal salvation of the world should be. If that's the case, then this is not a gospel. This is just another philosophy of men. He speaks about his personal former manner of life. Because the problem 
that is going on in these Galatian churches is that what Paul calls troublers have uh, infiltrated into these churches only within a matter of a year of him establishing them so that they could add to the gospel by saying, no, you must in some way uh, bring yourself under the fold of what is the law of Judaism, the works of the law, which Paul uses the phrase throughout Galatians and Romans, the works of the law. We will talk about the works of the law in the weeks ahead and what exactly that means and all the ink that has been spilled in the debates about it. But it is an important phrase where Paul says, the works of the law. You may not add to the works of the law, this gospel. These infiltrators have come in and brought in some type of um, system in which they say you must be circumcised, you must hold to the dietary law, you must become Jewish in order to be Christian. We're not going to put away all these other aspects of the Old Testament law. We know that's why the accusation is being made to the Galatians. You know that's why Paul is mentioning his particular history. Because he goes on to say, I am the best Jew. Don't talk to me about Judaism. Right? He says, I've persecuted the church violently. Violently. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond all of my contemporaries. I was young. I was zealous. I was hot-headed. I knew what was right, and I was going to do it. He actually got conscript letters from Jerusalem to go up to Damascus to begin to persecute and imprison the people in Damascus. It was on that road, the Damascus road, in which he was converted. He says, I was so extremely zealous, zealous, for the traditions of my fathers. But he says this, He, God, set me apart before I was born. That is different than some type of man-made gospel. He set me apart before I was born. He called me by grace. And he was pleased to reveal his son to me. So that I might preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. You have to hear what Paul just said. He's echoing. Something that anyone in the Old Testament would be aware of. He is saying, I was commissioned prophetically by revelation. You see, at the beginning of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is called with those kind of words. We're told in Jeremiah 1.4 that a word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And God said to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you and commissioned you to preach to the Gentiles. That's exactly what Paul just said. He who knew me before I was born, he set me apart so that I might preach to the Gentiles. What he's saying is, what I'm giving you is not my opinion. I am, he's connecting himself to the lineage of the history of God's prophetical revelation. And he's saying, I have been downloaded with information. I have not been uploaded trying to tinker my way to the wisdom of God as though I connected some dots and, and did some algorithms in my private study. What he's saying is, God dropped this on me. I have had this gospel revealed to me from above. From before I was born, this was how he was going to do it with me. 
That's so important. That's so important when we talk about this gospel. So on the Damascus Road, Paul was traveling and a great white light surrounded him. It shone all around him. He heard a voice that said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this is the revelation. Immediately. No question, no deliberation, no back and forth, no Q&A with a cup of coffee and crossing your legs around a table. He fell on his face and said, Who are you, Lord? You see. And that was Paul's conversion. The very next words out of his mouth were nothing more than acknowledging the lordship of this being who is light. And he said, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And that was it. From that point on, Paul had to preach the gospel because it was by divine revelation. So that's why he goes on to say, the very next point, I did not, when I had this revelation, I did not immediately consult with anybody. I went away into Arabia. Saying is, no one told me this gospel and no one fine-tuned this gospel for me. Arabia is a very ambiguous term. It could mean anything pretty much east of Syria, as you see on the map. Anything that part of the room. It could be up in the north, it could be up in the middle, it could be in the south. Particularly people um, interpret this to say Arabia being, at the time of Paul, a kingdom in the southeast, the Nabataean kingdom. In that region, there was a kingdom... Nabat, that actually had the location of Mount Sinai. And some speculate that after Paul's great revelation of Jesus Christ himself, he went away to reorient his whole head, to reorient everything he ever thought was true and right. And some think he went back to the mountain in which God first touched down with Moses to reveal his law. To contemplate the implications of what Christ has done in bringing himself to the world. So after this, the next stage in his timeline, he says, Three years later, I went to Jerusalem. That is, three years after the fact. Then I finally started talking to some people. I went to go speak to Cephas, another name for Peter, one of the main primary leaders of the apostles. And he said, For 15 days successively, he just spoke with Peter. You can only imagine the conversations in that. Okay, so Peter, you you walked with Jesus and you said he uh, fed 5,000 with only a few loaves of bread. And 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 you also said that he was going to give the Holy Spirit. And wait, now what was your perspective on Pentecost? How did those 3,000 souls uh, become saved? And how did they all speak in tongues? And all these dots in the Rabbi Paul's mind are being connected. He is speaking with Peter, getting the full perspective of the gospel because of a previous revelation given to him. And he says this, there was no lie. Right after that, I had to run away up to Tarsus, you'll see. 
Cilicia. He says in the text, I went to Syria and Cilicia. That is, up north the way, because we're told in Acts that a group of Hellenists, that is, Greek-speaking Jews, tried to kill Paul. So, Paul's meeting with Peter for 15 days or so may be cut short because he was being persecuted and had to run away. Paul's going into so much detail here. Why? Because the, the troublers in Galatia are trying to accuse him in some way to say he's preaching a false gospel. And, Pete, and, and um, <clears throat> Paul is going out of his way to say, no, I will tell you exactly the succession of steps that brought us to this point. I will show you exactly how my gospel was a revelation and how it is authenticated through the other apostles. And so the final and third stage of this journey, as we see his narrative, he's explaining to the Galatians, is again one more second visit to Jerusalem. That is, the verse where it says, 14 years later now, he comes back to Jerusalem because of a revelation. He went up to Jerusalem. And this time he brought Barnabas and Titus. And they had a private discussion with him and the other apostles. We know that James was there. That is um, the Lord's brother. And Paul goes out of his way to say this point. I brought with me not only Barnabas, but this other man named Titus. And he says, and Titus is a Greek. The whole point for that has to do with him not being circumcised. Not being part of this law that is being thrown on top of the Galatians. And he says, in that whole meeting, the whole time I was there with the apostles in Jerusalem, no one was compelling Titus, who is clearly a Greek, to be circumcised, to eat clean, to eat kosher, to obey all the other laws of the Old Testament. He brings out Titus as a point to say, no, no, no. This is not the gospel. This is not the gospel that was given to the apostles. This is not the gospel that was revealed to me. There, you cannot add to this. It never was the case that it should have been added to this. If there were a problem, there would have been a problem back then when I had Titus around Peter and James and John and all the other apostles. And they had no problem with him being a Greek. They had no problem with him being outside of the law in this way. That's all his point. He says, in that meeting, there were particularly what he calls false brothers. False brothers who came into that meeting, perhaps, or church meeting there in Jerusalem that he happened 15 years ago to spy out that, oh, the phrase is beautiful, to spy out our freedom in Christ. There is so much pain in the heart. Everything in this world is based on performance. No one loves you just for you. Nobody. Your closest spouse. Nobody sees you. Nobody knows you completely. And everybody wants something from you. Even the best friends. The most lovely wife. The most lovely husband. The best friend you have ever had. You still have to bring something to that relationship. You still have to perform and keep that friendship alive.
Paul is saying that there is freedom in the gospel. That if you will believe Christ in that glorious benediction, that grace and peace in our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins in this present evil age to deliver us. For this was the will of our God and Father. That is, if you will believe Christ on the cross for you, you will receive him and you will bring nothing to the table. You can never lose it. You can never perform or underperform for it. It is yours. You are free. There is not one thing you have to worry or add to. You could have the worst successive days in your life in which you deny Christ and reject him and only be brought to the place back of Peter in which he brings you and hugs you and comforts you because it never was from the beginning, the middle, or the end dependent on you. That he loves you because he loves you and he knows you from the top hair of your head to the end of your toenail and everything in the depths of your soul. And you are free. You are free. You are free and you are loved. And you will never find that anywhere in this world. Do you understand the reason why Paul is writing this letter? There are false brothers who have come into this church and they have ideas. Oh, they have wisdom and they are smart. They are so smart and so full of themselves that they think that this gospel needs some help. They think that they need to add a little bit of extra performance, a little bit of cleanliness, a little bit of law, a little bit of righteousness. They have no idea that they kill people's souls by lying to them and enslaving them with all the other principalities and powers of this world. False brothers. The church attracts conservatives. If you like family values, you might like the church. If you want to be social, well, you could be social here. There are other reasons for being in the church. And the church has always had False brothers. But there is a church that more than the breath in your lungs, more than the money in your account, that you want nothing more than union with God. And that's the church, you see. That all you want more than anything in this life is to be His. That's the church. Most beautiful people in the world are found there. They want nothing more than this gospel. They want nothing more than Christ with no additives, pure and organic. Christ, none of my works, none of my boasting, nothing I have. They are some of the most humble, charitable, and lovely people that have ever graced the surface of this globe. That is called the church. And all they want is to see the kingdom of Christ in this world. They'll give up their paychecks. They'll give up their houses. They'll give up their life to see his kingdom come. It's the most beautiful thing. 
a good church, a true church, is worth fighting for. And this is Paul's point in the letter. That there are people like this that are dwelt by the Spirit that actually see that this whole thing is just a floodwater away from hell. And they want none of it except Christ. So he says particularly, you have to understand his point here. The point of the gospel is that it would not be built on the foundation of the wisdom of men. He said, those when I went to Jerusalem, they seemed influential. He says, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. His point is saying, they added nothing to me because you need to know that my gospel was revealed. It wasn't a council we had in Jerusalem. We didn't have a meeting and record minutes and say, oh, I think we got the gospel worked out. This is probably right. They added nothing to my gospel. The gospel being, shortly thereafter, he defines it as, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the true gospel. Flesh and blood did not reveal it. It's not based on a probabilistic possibility. It did not come from a lab test. It was not calculated through a dashboard. And it is not the recent Pew research. You see, this is the gospel that was revealed by Paul. By direct revelation. It's one thing to know what you don't know. It's another thing to not know what you don't know. That's the dangerous part. That's why the gospel cannot be from the wisdom of men. Because by the very nature, what we're talking about are things that no one in this room knows about. We're talking about the eternal, dwelling, glorious presence of God. You can't go to the local university and study that. You can't put it on a petri dish. You can't do sociological evaluations to say, what do you think? The blessed, glorious presence of God is like. What do you think the third heaven is? See, it has to be revealed if it's to be a true gospel. It cannot be based on our intuitions. We all are fools. There's a proverb 14, 12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is death. Now, when I say we're all foolish, I deliberately mean all of us and we, because there's this somewhat uh, well-known story. You might not have heard of it before, but it's about a man from Pittsburgh. And it's worse than uh, if you ever heard the the phrase people use, um, man from Florida. The news reports, man from Florida uh, hijacks a car, drives 200 miles an hour, these kind of things. Um, Well, we have a man from Pittsburgh. Uh, maybe that didn't connect with you. The man from Florida is like the, it's the, um, the stereotypical phrase said, like when you hear local news reports of like some crazy person doing something ridiculously crazy. Just like, wow, like that, that was wild. Like the news reports that just make, that make the episode Cops actually happen. Um, well, we have one here uh, from Pittsburgh. It illustrates something remarkable about why our gospel must be from Jesus Christ. The Dunning-Kruger effect came from this, a psychological evaluation. But first, the story. 1995, a man 
MacArthur Wheeler was reading, I don't know if it was a newspaper or something, where he learned, and this is the danger, when you learn a little bit, you think you know a lot. He learned that invisible ink, part of invisible ink, constitutes lemon juice. That is, there's some lemon juice in invisible ink. Now you know. Well, he thought that was an interesting fact. And so, he made the connection that lemon juice, therefore, is invisible to security cameras because that makes sense. And then what he did is he covered his face in lemon juice, which at least kind of makes sense if you accept the previous premise I just said about the security camera thing. This is a true story. 1995. Homegrown, Pittsburghian. He robbed two banks that day in the greater Pittsburgh area. You can look it up. He was caught. They, they found him. And when they found him, in the police report, it says, the man kept saying to himself multiple times, but I wore the juice. <laughs> but I wore the juice. Okay? Now, he was a 45-year-old, normal-functioning adult man. And we know that because the story was so ridiculous, it attracted the attention of two psychologists, David Dunning and Justin Kruger, who confirmed that the man was not on drugs, was not drunk with alcohol, had no previous or present mental illness, schizophrenia, anything, nothing. He was just a guy that read something about lemon juice. God forbid, right? And so they just went on a tangent with this, studied him, went out and produced what is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. They, they actually studied um, hundreds of, of high school students or, or middle school students, school-aged children, I'm not sure, and they evaluated all these students on uh, humor and logic and grammar psychologically. How, how could they discern humor? How was their reasoning or logical abilities with, with problems? How could they uh, parse words and use grammar? And what they found in the study is that the bottom 12% of um, the quadrants, you could say, of this study um, distribution chart, the bottom 12 of underperforming, the lowest 12 performing, they asked them two questions. First was the evaluation, grammar, logic, um, um, humor, study these things. Then, then their second part of the exam was, how do you feel that you did on the test? What they found was, the bottom 12% thought themselves, you know it, that they did the best. That they thought that they were on the upper 10 or so percent of performance. Complete flip. What actually finds is the people who perform most better usually think themselves to performing under because they assume that everyone else is as smart as them. When they don't understand, they're actually smarter than the average. But the danger is the Dunning-Kruger effect, psychologists call it now, because it's been reproduced multiple times over, a sociological effect in which 
When you know a little bit of information, that's when you're the dumbest. Right? When you actually think you know a little bit about an issue, you know, you get into any of like geo geopolitics, like people pontificating about uh, Russia and Ukraine and, and these things. I'm like, unless you're working for the Pentagon and this is your discipline to know this part, I'm sorry. Like, you really don't know that much about it just because you watched Hannity one time. Like, but see, that's the thing. Like, that's the problem. You know a little bit about it. And when you think you know a little bit about it, you actually become very confident in your knowledge. And you presume yourself to know a lot, right? The Dunning-Kruger effect. Now, can you hear this gospel? I am not your sage. I am your servant. A pastor is a minister. A minister means to serve. This is not your idea, my idea. The whole point of Paul's letter is to say, it is not his idea. There's no Dunning-Kruger effect going on over here. I didn't read a few books and think that I should preach the gospel now. This is a revelation of Jesus the Christ. Every other religion, every other philosophy is a partially envisioned understanding of truth that is so inflated on finding one particular thing that might be true to the eternal kingdom to come. And extrapolating that into eternity. See, there's a weak comparison between lemon juice, invisible ink, and security cameras. If you make a strong connection between those three, you're going to go to jail. There's also, and this is the point of the gospel, a very weak connection between our righteousness and his righteousness and the eternal throne judgment seat of God. If you, by your human wisdom, seek to make some connections between those three, you will go to jail. You will go to jail. This gospel is not man's wisdom. To bring it to an end, I hope that you would hear this great truth from a Puritan named Richard Sibbs. There is more height and depth and breadth. There is greater dimensions of love and mercy in Christ than there are in your sins and your miseries. Why? He says, and all this is gloriously revealed in the gospel. It's one thing to know that God can love you, that he can save you, that he can come close to you. It is another thing to know that he will. It's another thing to know that his heart or desire for you is to save you, is to come close to you, is to love you. You can't find that in the world. What will you have? On a cloudy day, the Lord doesn't love you. On a sunny day, he does. When you have all your finances together and the children aren't fighting and there's peace in your home, then apparently you're blessed. If you have no money, if you have sickness and disease and torment, then apparently you're cursed. 
There's no way to look into the world, to look into all this general revelation that God has given us in this world to say, how can I know that he has loved me? How can I know that I have God's blessings? The world will not tell you that. Your human reasoning will try to deduce and you will always come up with false analogies. You will always come up with false conclusions. For the definitive, specially, uniquely, gloriously revealed will of God is only in the gospel, which is the closing benediction of Paul to the Galatians, where he says again that grace and mercy from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord comes to you because he gave himself for our sins to redeem us from this present evil age. Last line. For this was the will of our Father. He wrote that to all the Galatians, not knowing Tom from Jane or any of them all, or their hearts or dispositions, or their faith or not faith, because it doesn't matter, because it's a standing, eternal, perennial benediction to anyone and to all. If you will believe this gospel, God's will for you is always blessing and love. It cannot be changed. It's by his divine revelation. Dear Father God, please help us to see Lord, we have to know, we have to believe that there is a truth to all of this. That there is a truth to know that your will toward us, that this gospel, this perennial benediction that cannot be changed, that cannot be altered, that has come down from heaven, that is not the creation of our thoughts or mind, is that you will, you will to bless all of those who trust in Christ. So therefore, Lord, we say in this prayer to all of us, we do nothing more than simply give you our hearts. We come to you naked, come to you with nothing. We have the freedom of your love and know your will toward us always in Christ. Thank you for showing us this love by putting your son on that tree as a forever expression of the extent you will go to bless us. Now please, Lord, bring your blessing. Now that we have heard your blessing, we pray in this prayer, Lord, bring your blessing. I pray, Father, you would fill us all with your spirit, that we will walk with you, and that we will have union with you, communion with you, that is sweeter than anything this world could offer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.